This is the seventh episode of Last Best Stories, a podcast about the people and places of Montana. I'm Jewel Banville. Our show today has two stories that are nothing like each other. And without, you know, getting on an analyst's couch with you and going too deep into why, it basically represents the whole idea behind this project. I want you to hear the real place where I live, the variety of the people in this particular spot. Like where you live, it has old people with great voices and important stories. It's got college kids reinventing weird sports they can play on their bikes in the shadow of a mountain. You'll hear all of them today. And for future episodes, I'm working on stories about a whole town that's for sale by a woman who can't hang on to its history forever, though she has tried. There's another one about how to remember the men who died in this mysterious plane crash near Yellowstone. It's a special collaboration I'm doing with the Bozeman Chronicle. We're all pretty excited about it. I've got another story brewing about these two guys on a glacier trail crew who happened to come between a mama grizz and her cubs. They learned a lot about themselves that day. These stories happen here, and they are Montana stories for sure. But they're about more than a place, you know? So let's get started. This story about death is not the downer you think it's going to be. Mainly that's because of Ethel Burns, who was married to Irwin Burns for 63 years. They had six kids. He was a teacher and a vice principal at Sentinel High School in Missoula for a long time. And he refereed basketball games and football games for something like four decades. He also had cancer three times. And by the end, it was Parkinson's. Ethel was there with him, most of his family was, when he died on St. Patrick's Day in 2014. They all knew it was coming. That's because Irwin opened the valve of his feeding tube, and inside it was the right medication at the right dose to take his life. It still surprises me that, that there weren't more tears, but I think the thing was we had all cried with him when we said our goodbyes, you know. We'd all had time to come to terms with it. And it just, instead of seeing, you know, just feeling like something where you wanted to break down and just sob, it was just, it was just this feeling of happiness that, that he was able to go so, so gently and, you know, with all of us there and uh, just, wow, this is the way it should end, you know. Ethel told her story in her living room in the Rattlesnake Valley to Tess Hawes, one of my audio students at the University of Montana. The room had this great-grandfather clock. You hear it ticking in the background. And Ethel gave her tea. She was the best part of this news story Tess was working on about the laws regarding death with dignity. It turns out Montanas are pretty unique. It was illegal for doctors to prescribe end-of-life drugs here until 2009. It still is against the law in all but five states. Montana was the second, after Oregon. Vermont, Washington, and most recently California followed. But Montana's the only one so far that did it through the courts. It happened with Baxter versus Montana. The state Supreme Court ruled that nothing currently on the books prevents physician-assisted suicide. There was no successful appeal of the decision, so basically it became the law. 
the legislature considered actual bills, but as with a lot of things the ledge here considers, they didn't go anywhere. For Erwin Burns and his doctor, safe on account of the Baxter decision, that didn't matter. Erwin, he was a planner, and his wishes were clear. When he figured out what was going to happen to him, he got busy. Well, Erwin decided that he was going to set a date, and he was going to take the medication, and that was going to be it. He even planned the menu, what we were going to have, and we had a little program made up, and he was very involved in that. And it was just, it was just wonderful. We, um, we had tea and cookies and <laughs> whatnot, and people came early, and everybody got to talk with Irwin and spend a little time alone with him one-on-one. -on -one. And we had music. My grandson had uh, made a CD from music he wrote and played, and, and uh, it, we, he was in the room in there in, a, in his um, lift chair. And then at 10 o'clock, Irwin said, it's time to go. Funny in a way that Irwin was the one who planned the menu. For at least four months prior to his death, he couldn't eat or drink. His feeding tube went in just before Thanksgiving. Uh, actually, when he first came home, um, how was that? Uh, no, he, he had the feeding tube, but the, physical, or the uh, speech therapist mm -hmm. thought she could get him to be able to swallow again. And she did, he did all kinds of exercises, but it didn't work. And so, so he knew then that he was never going to be able to eat again. And that was really hard. He used to talk about how he'd never have a beer again or a, or a hamburger. And uh, Thanksgiving came during that time, and of course he couldn't have anything to eat. And he walked through the kitchen. I thought it was kind of funny. The only thing that he complained about was the layered salad. <laughs> but anyway, that's not much to look forward to in life. And uh, we just had been sitting around enjoying each other and talking and, you know, laughing about funny things that had happened in the past. And so um, the fellow who had been taking care of him at night poured the medication into the tube and Irwin opened the valve. And it, you know, it took a little while to kind of take effect. And so we just kept on visiting and and talking, and pretty soon he, it was like he went to sleep. And uh, the nurse said that he could still hear us, even though he appeared to be unconscious. And so we all talked to him and, you know, hugged him and just really, you know, said goodbye. And uh, about it was about 45 minutes, I think, from the time he took the medication. And then... Uh, he was gone, and it was just, it was really neat. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't think of death as being something that, that can be beautiful, but. Long before the Baxter case cleared the way for Irwin and Ethel to plan the celebration of his life and death, he and Ethel wrote down some of what they wanted for themselves at the end. Many years ago, we had talked about death, and, and neither one of us wanted to die in a hospital hooked up to 
machines and, you know, and uh, we didn't know that this option would be available, so we never really made any plans exactly what we would do, but we did know that we didn't want to be, you know, die a painful, prolonged death. And uh, But they, everybody just thought it was great that, you know, that he could... He was a very strong person and uh, someone, you know, who just, like it said in, in his story, he said, we have to be the driver of our own bus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, that was that was Irwin, by golly. Ethel's 85 and still living in the condo she and Irwin moved into in their later years. They lived in different places in the Rattlesnake since 1959. When it's her time, she says, she'll probably choose the way Irwin did. Our thanks to Ethel Burns and to Tess Hawes, who recorded that interview, and to the Montana Supreme Court for giving people an option to be who they are at the end of their lives. My folks moved to Florida a long time ago. In the last couple of years, my dad, who's in his 80s, had every heart procedure short of getting a new one installed. He's had cancer, too. Chemo and radiation were hard, but they did their job. Before that, worst case scenario, a doctor said, they'd remove part of his esophagus and put in a feeding tube that he'd have for the rest of his life. And I thought of Irwin and Ethel, how smart they were to understand that's no way to go out. I hope we all get the chance, people in Florida, people everywhere else where this isn't on the books. If you also have some big thoughts about this, I really recommend the documentary, How to Die in Oregon. I saw it years ago, and it really stuck with me. You're listening to Last Best Stories. Support comes from the Free Music Archive, where you can find vast treasures of songs you didn't know you needed, but you totally do. That last piece was scored by Nick Balmarito, a musician who's on the Free Music Archive and who also happens to be a professor of philosophy. And speaking of people who can do more than one thing at one time, how about staying on your bike while you chase a little ball and hit it with a homemade mallet? Was that transition too weird? Well, the story kind of is too. Three, two, one, polo! Bike polo to me is... Bike polo to me, I guess, is an opportunity to... Bike polo to me is... Riding my bike really fast into other people. Hanging out with friends and having a good time. It's a chance to be a kid again. The uh, battle ones are pretty awesome. Improve my bike skills. Moving around in tight spaces, speeding up quickly, slowing down quickly. Maneuver my bike and ride just as fast as a guy, then I could beat him to the ball. Let off a little bit of steam. One thing on my list that I'm doing every week, week in, week out... Well, the rules of bike polo, from what I've been introduced, uh, basically consist of three-on-three. Everybody lines up with their tires on the back wall. Everybody races for the ball when somebody yells three-two-one polo. Shoot the ball into the goal. And you have to hit it with the round side of your mallet for it to count as a shot or else it's a shuffle. Usually first to five or ten to twelve-minute games. Don't put your foot down, otherwise you have to dab. If you do, you have to tap out in the middle. So you're out of gameplay for a minute. Wear a helmet. Contact rules are bike on bike. Body to body. Mallet on mallet. You see, you can elbow as much as you want. You just can't be a dick about it. Well, bam That's all you need to know. That sound collage from a parking garage was produced by Sergio Gonzalez when he was a student at the University of Montana. Sergio's a real creative talent. 
He makes movies, he makes radio, he scores soundtracks, he's an actor, and you know, he manages a pizza place in Boise, Idaho. He also works for an outfit there called Director's Cut, where he teaches filmmaking to kids ages 6 to 15. You'll hear more from him in episodes to come. Our thanks this week to our producers and to our highly paid webmaster, Lee Banville. He redesigned our site at lastbeststories.org. The man is looking pretty cool. We're also getting wise about how to attract audience. To do that, we had to make some changes to our podcast feed, and it's possible you noticed. Sorry if that was annoying. Hey, but now you count. And to me, by the way, you always did. I'm Joel Banville. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>